Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hi, everybody. Thanks very much to the Commonwealth Club for having us. The title of our talk, uh, Katie and I today, will be talking about fierce patient centricity as a catalyst for innovation in cancer care. I'm going to sort of start by setting the stage. Approximately 400,000 people every year are diagnosed with what's considered a rare cancer. Uh, although they're individually rare, uh, together, this group of underserved cancers make up approximately 30% of all cancer diagnoses in the U.S. Many of these individual rare cancers don't have a standard of care, or if they do, the advancement of that standard of care is much slower uh, as compared to more, more common or less rare cancers. Rare cancer patients often are excluded from clinical trials, um, and generally the status quo for these rare cancer patients falls behind the pace of innovation that we see across modern oncology. A little bit of data. I promise I don't have too much of it. Um, Outcomes for rare cancer patients are dramatically worse than for patients with less common, excuse me, for more common cancers. So you can see, uh, regardless of, of gender and even over time, rare and, and less common cancers have worse survival, worse relative survival, worse five-year outcomes. Why is this? Lots of theories, but, but in general, uh, I think it's fair to simplify and say there are just fewer patients. So the way that science gets done, the way to get tumor tissue to scientists who are doing the work, uh, the way that we enroll in clinical trials to test new therapies, it just doesn't work when the, the group of these patients is so much smaller. And this is actually an infrastructure problem. The infrastructure, and by that I mean we need infrastructure to connect patients to these opportunities. We need infrastructure to develop and make access to samples and model systems that scientists can use and shareable, well-curated data that allows us to use the, to, to approach this virtuous cycle for research when you have good data and good models, as opposed to what we see very often, which is very few models, meaning inadequate funding, delays in outcomes, and the results that I showed. Uh, in terms of where does that infrastructure come from, I, I really like this quote from the Parker Institute where I, I worked uh, until recently that a monumental problem in research is structuring all the complex patient biological data into a single system. And that underlies a lot of the tools that we are trying to build at RCRF. So when I say we're building infrastructure, what do I mean? I mean, we have tissue and electronic health record donation where patients anywhere in the U.S. can donate their living cancer tissue and their medical records for research. We want to enable all patients, wherever they are, to access clinical and molecular testing that can be helpful in their decision-making around their treatments. And we want to provide flexi flexible excuse me, storage of cancer tissue and blood samples for both future clinical and research use for any patients anywhere. Why do we think this is the right path to solving this infrastructure problem? Uh, this this diagram here sort of talks about how donations of tumor tissue given through pattern.org, our tissue donation program, create new models that develop eventually into new publications, making new therapeutics accessible to patients. Our model is that patients are at the center of all these steps, right? Patients, if we create tools to organize and present data on behalf of those patients and make it complete and shareable, patients will benefit as this is directly a tool aimed at, at 
making their lives easier and their journey through cancer better. But that same exact data that's generated from patient samples and curated by the patients is what researchers need in order to really dig in and, and develop new therapeutic hypotheses, find new targets. And moreover, we want to make those available to researchers where they already are. Bringing those patients together, which we, we say are the, the source and beneficiary of all of these samples, all of this data, and all of these findings, our goal is to bring them into the research enterprise in a way that is largely not possible today. And I feel very fortunate to be able to, to work with the team that we have. And, and moreover, uh, when I talk about fierce patient centricity, I think you'll see what I mean in a minute, that we're very, very lucky to uh, have Katie Coleman working with us, who is one of the most fierce patients I've ever had the benefit of meeting. Um, Katie's going to tell you a little bit about her story. Um, so, Katie, over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Marshall, for that very kind intro. Um, so my name is Katie Coleman. I am the product and engineering lead at the Rare Cancer Research Foundation. But more importantly, I am also a patient. A little over three years ago, I was diagnosed with an ultra-rare stage 4 kidney cancer at the age of 29. And although my prognosis didn't look great at the time, and I am unbelievably fortunate to be standing on this stage here today with no evidence of disease, a feat once many thought was nearly impossible, the road and path to get here certainly wasn't easy. It was full of uncertainty, closed doors, and obstacles that felt nearly insurmountable at the time. But before we dive in and I share a little bit more about my story to shed some light on what it can be like to be diagnosed with a rare cancer, I first thought it would be good to start with a little background about how I got involved with the Rare Cancer Research Foundation in the first place as I think it highlights the importance of the fact that although you'll hear my personal story here today, my story is not unique. Although my outcome may be an outlier, the experiences and many of the hurdles that I faced are ones that are faced by many patients with rare cancers. I also think it highlights the need and the urgency of the work that we're doing. Because although my outcome may be an outlier, there is nothing that I would love more than for my story to be lost in a sea of success stories. The road to get there may be difficult, but it's not impossible. So I'll never forget the first time I heard Mark, the founder of the Rare Cancer Research Foundation story, as I was browsing their website. I found myself on the site because a few days prior, I was attending ASCO, one of the largest oncology conferences in the world, as a patient advocate for the very first time. And I was struck by a conversation that I had there, so I needed to learn more. And in the weekend leading up to that conference, I had been heads down working around the clock to use my skills as a software engineer to build a tool that I thought highlighted some of the issues that rare cancers faced. I actually pushed that site live in the cab on the way to ASCO, uh, hoping that it would be a talking point to be able to help people understand some of these issues. See, everybody seemed to acknowledge that there were significant hurdles blocking advancements for research in rare cancers. They all agreed that it'd be great if we found a solution, but it felt like all we ever did was talk about it. I was hoping that this tool could provide an opportunity to turn words into action, which is exactly what happened when I ran into the Rare Cancer Research Foundation at the conference. 
It was there that I met Barbara, the president of our pattern initiative. And while I was passionately sharing with her all the hurdles and issues I saw rare cancers facing, as I often do with anybody who will lend me an ear, I didn't see eyes glossing over, uh, which I often did whenever I broached this topic with others. Instead, I saw heads nodding. So I continued and I opened my computer to show the team the tool that I had just built, consolidating resources for chromophobe kidney cancer, a tool that collected all of the research and resources for a rare disease and put them all into one place to make the most important information easily accessible. See, one of the main issues I saw in rare cancers was access to information. As a product of being rare, info was often sparse and scattered all across the internet. Tracking down resources on a rare disease is a feat in itself, and I knew how long it took me to track down these resources. It didn't make sense to me that everybody would be replicating this process. So I figured, let's do it once, consolidate the resources, and make them more accessible to others. So that's exactly what this tool did. It collected all the latest research papers, trial data, institutions, providers studying the disease, any existing cell lines, research highlights, and organizations supporting and funding research for it. As I continued to demo the tool, Barbara stopped me about halfway through and asked if I really just said I built that in a, over a weekend for fun. Uh, my cheeks almost instantly turned red as I recognized that this wasn't necessarily a normal person's hobby. Um, and feeling slightly embarrassed, I confirmed, yes, I spent the holiday weekend building this tool because I worked full-time and I only had time for advocacy work on the weekend, but I really wanted a tool like this to exist in the world. And she nearly offered me a job on the spot. So three days later, I found myself at home doing my due diligence on the Rare Cancer Research Foundation when I came across Mark's story for the first time. And I only made it about halfway through that video before I paused, grabbed my laptop, ran into my husband's office, placed it on his desk, rewound about 20 seconds, and then said, you've got to listen to this before I hit play. Now, I'm not sure if my husband heard a single word that Mark said as I continued, as he continued to share his story, um, any of the issues and hurdles he saw rare cancers facing and the infrastructure changes required to move research forward because I kept excitedly interjecting um, with my commentary as I pointed at the screen. There was a whole lot of, did you hear that? And that's it. He gets it. As Mark nearly word for word described all the same issues and potential solutions I had so passionately excited and excitedly shared with Barbara just a few days prior. Now, Mark and I may have two very different cancers, but was, what was confirmed for me that day was that our experiences and the problems we encountered, regardless of the, that fact, were the same. This wasn't a rare kidney cancer problem or an ocular melanoma problem. This, more broadly, was a rare cancer problem. And it was at that moment that I knew this is exactly where I belonged. So I joined the Rare Cancer Research Foundation, and we are building out the site that I built just before ASCO, expanding the resources to other rare cancers and diseases. But we're also tackling so much more. And before we get into that, I thought we'd rewind a little bit, and I'll share a little bit more about my personal story to give a specific example of some of the obstacles patients with rare cancers may face. So as I mentioned, a little over three years ago, I 
received a stage four kidney cancer diagnosis at the age of 29 in the ER. I was a newlywed, uh, just married two months prior, and I had spent the last year and a half trying to chase down a diagnosis that everybody just assured me was anxiety. But I knew something was wrong. I wasn't medically trained, and at 29, I had no idea how to navigate the medical system. So for a year and a half, I fumbled around a system that wasn't designed for me. I never found any answers, just a ever-growing list of anxiety diagnoses growing in my chart. Generalized anxiety, social anxiety, health anxiety. The list felt never-ending, and I felt exhausted. I'd seen nine different providers during that period of time, and I'd also asked many of them if we could rule out cancer because this didn't feel like anxiety to me. But I was reassured on more than one occasion that I was too young for cancer. A stat that I would soon learn wouldn't be the only way that I would be an outlier. After a year and a half of chasing a diagnosis, my husband and I had just gotten married. We were building a new home and planning our future family when we found the cancer. Trying to ensure it'd be safe for us to have kids, I was doing one final push for my health and establishing care in the new city that we were moving to. It was during this period of time that I started to feel a hard mass in my upper right abdomen. I brought the mass up to my new primary care provider, who seemed a little bit overwhelmed trying to place my medical history since their systems didn't connect with all the others. But they assured me that it wasn't anything to be worried about and that the most pressing issue was getting my anxiety under control. But over the next few days, this hard mass just continued to eat at me. I had lost about 15 pounds over the last year, which had led to me discovering the mass. And now that I found it, I could not stop thinking about it. I knew this wasn't normal, so I gave it a few days to see if anything changed before I headed into an urgent care. And a few hours before I went in, I was actually on the phone with my mom, who, sensing the nerves in my voice, had asked what was wrong. I broke down on that call, telling her that I felt like everybody was missing something, that they weren't seeing the full picture. I told her about this new mask that I had found and how everybody was so certain that I was fine when deep down I knew that something was wrong. Half prompted by a spiraling Google search, I shared with my mom that night that I was worried that we had caught this too late. I was worried it was cancer, stage four, and had already gone to my liver. A comment that still haunts me to this day, given the predicament that I found myself in just a few hours later. At the time, I was convinced that I had colon cancer and that this hard mass that I was feeling was an enlarged liver, which is exactly what I presented to the urgent care with. While there, a nurse practitioner had felt the mass, suggested that it could be an enlarged liver, and they sent me to the ER. And it was in the ER, after begging for a scan, we found that I didn't have an enlarged litter, liver, but instead, cancer. That night, we'd find that I had a 12-centimeter mass on my right kidney, larger than a softball, and what would end up being 15 or more tumors in my liver, stage four kidney cancer. I left the ER that night completely crushed. I didn't know anything about cancer, or stage four cancer for that matter. I was told I would meet with an oncologist, but I didn't even know what an oncologist was. All I knew was I was a 29-year-old new newlywed who thought I had my entire life ahead of me. But it was now all slipping through the cracks, just like I did. 
The next few weeks after my diagnosis were a whirlwind. I may not have known anything about the cancer about cancer at the time, but I knew I was going to need to ramp up my learnings quickly. Unlike most patients, before they go for a biopsy or have a official diagnosis, I had a few hints ahead of time that I might have a rare cancer. The night I was diagnosed, the radiologist had written in my report that the tumor on my right kidney was suspicious for chromophobe renal cell carcinoma or an oncocytoma. Two words that I googled ad nauseum for the next week until I had my first appointment with my oncologist. Now, it's not typical for those words to be listed in a radiology report, but it did kick off my learnings and provide a springboard for me to learn more. I learned that chromophobe kidney cancer was a rare type of kidney cancer that, that accounted for about 5% of renal cell carcinomas diagnosed each year. And of those cases, only about 5 to 10% of them spread. And oncocytomas, they were benign. As I continued to look for more information online, I began to recognize that both of these tumors uh, seemed to be relatively rare. So I may not have understood much of what I was reading without context, but I recognized that this was a bit abnormal. Over the next few weeks, I'd have more scans and biopsies. We'd biopsy both the tumor in my kidney as well as one of them in my liver. And when the results came back, they came back as a metastatic, un metastatic unclassified oncocytic renal neoplasm. Ask me how many times it took me to learn how to say that. Clearly still working on it. Um, I was told that it was rare, but I didn't understand just how rare it was until I started investigating on my own. It was through support groups that I had found online um, that I had been advised about the importance of finding a specialist as well as how treatment options can differ amongst patients with rare cancers, including their response rate to them. So back when we thought that I might have still had chromophobe kidney cancer, I asked my oncologist at the time if they had ever seen a patient with chromophobe renal cell carcinoma, an answer to which I received, we've seen chromophobe kidney cancer here. And when I asked how many cases, the language was always we, not I. So he called a few days after the biopsy to provide me with the results and told me that it actually wasn't chromophobe kidney cancer, but an oncocytic renal neoplasm instead, to which my immediate first question was, does that mean this is benign? Oncocytic renal neoplasm sure sounds kind of like an oncocytoma. But he unfortunately clarified that because it had already spread to my liver and that the cells in my kidney and liver matched identically, this unfortunately was stage four kidney cancer. As I pushed and asked more questions about treatment options, I then would receive an answer that would soon follow me everywhere I went. They weren't sure which treatment options would work best for me because they'd never seen this before. The cancer I had was so rare that it defied the textbooks, which meant we didn't have many treatment options or guidelines to go off of. My tumor did share some characteristics with chromophobe kidney cancer, one that had been listed in my report before. And although chromophobe kidney cancer was less likely to become metastatic, when it did, unfortunately due to its rarity, it didn't have any dedicated treatment options and it didn't respond well to the current treatments and therapies. However, without many other options and surgery off the table, 
it was suggested that we go with a treatment that worked best for the most common type of kidney cancer, and we just have to hope for the best from there. Since I'd heard patients with chromophobe RCC may not respond well to this particular treatment, and chromophobe was the one that mine would be most similar to, and the fact my oncologist hadn't seen many cases of chromophobe kidney cancer, I decided to start looking for second opinions, and third, and fourth. Eventually, my husband and I would end up down at MD Anderson in Houston, Texas. They're one of the best cancer centers in the world. Surely they will have seen this, I thought. Unfortunately, they hadn't either. But I did find myself one step closer. They did understand the biology of my disease a little bit better and recommended a different treatment option for me to start as my frontline treatment, which I started as I continued to search and pursue other options. During this period of time, as I Googled every single last word in my pathology report and learned every staining that was used, piece by piece, I uncovered just how rare my case seemed to be. All roads pointed back to this being an oncocytoma. And even though it was metastatic and had spread to my liver, something that has only been reported single digits worldwide in history, I was hopeful and searched high and low for anyone who would be willing to remove it. Every single day, I'd wake up and cut my hand around it in my abdomen, tortured by the thought of if this was growing uncontrolled, like a ticking time bomb in my body. Or maybe it was shrinking, buying me a little bit more time. I was looking for anyone willing to take it out. However, since I was already stage four, had many tumors in my liver, and had a bleed during my biopsy, nobody surgically was willing to touch me with a 10-foot pole. But I was convinced that maybe if I had found somebody who had seen a case like mine, or had ever even heard of it before, maybe I would have more options. Although I was now being seen by one of the top cancer centers in the world, I'd come to recognize that because I'd called the general line in order to book a second opinion, I'd been placed with the first oncologist that could get me in. And while they were brilliant in their area of expertise, that area of expertise wasn't rare kidney cancers, which is what I needed at the time. When I'd gone through my initial consultation and we'd selected a treatment plan for me, I was told again that surgery wouldn't be an option, not unless we cleared all of the tumors from my liver with the therapy, an outcome that they didn't want me to get caught up in because this treatment didn't cure patients. My treatment goals weren't curative, but to simply prolong my life as long as possible. I understood that they were trying to level set my expectations, but I was looking for more. Every conversation I had was still laced with unknowns. I don't know. We don't know. We've never seen this before. I was determined to search high and low until I found somebody who had. I ended up switching oncologists to somebody who was a little bit more specialized in rare kidney cancers, a decision that changed my treatment plan from surgery is not possible to surgery is the goal. And I tried to contain my excitement, uh, but felt like I could have leaped out of the chair in that first appointment. It was the first time that I had any sense of hope. Now, surgery wasn't guaranteed. I still had to respond to treatment to shrink a couple of the tumors before the surgeons would be willing to operate. There was a low chance that I could make it to surgery, but it was no longer no chance. I held out and kept put I held out hope and kept pushing. During that same period of time, 
I was connected with the National Cancer Institute and the National Institutes of Health through an organization that helped support rare kidney cancers. And it was through that connection and my first telehealth appointment I had where, with the NIH where everything began to change. I held back the tears in that appointment as I sat across from a doctor who for the first time told me that they had seen a case like mine. And not only had they seen it, they thought surgery could be possible with a shot at a cure. Cure, words no one in my case dared to speak before, as I had an ultra-rare cancer with extensive disease and one without a single proven treatment ever tried on it. Surely, this must be too good to be true. They must be missing something. Just before my 30th birthday, I had finally come to terms with my own mortality and the fate that lie ahead. But maybe there was more. The NIH still couldn't promise anything. Although they'd seen cases like mine, it had been over 20 years, and they first had to confirm that this wasn't indeed a metastatic oncocytoma in order to operate. Something that after obsessing over for four months, I was certain that I had. MD Anderson had even advised that this thing looked exactly like a metastatic oncocytoma. But since they weren't supposed to exist, we are carrying on with my diagnosis of a metastatic unclassified oncocytic renal neoplasm, my least favorite tongue twister. After the appointments at the NIH, they had requested my slides from my biopsy, ones that we not only had difficulty tracking down because I'd gone for so many second opinions, but ones that would also get lost, taking a very stressful and unexpected detour to a rural hospital in Montana along the way. An experience that would teach me not only what a precious resource tumor tissue is, but also how difficult it is as a patient to access information about it. My surgery and my future was held in balance, dependent on those few tiny slides making it to their destination. When they didn't, I spent days on hold, trying to track them down and find out where they had gone, only to find out that even though it was my tissue being sent, no one was authorized to give me any information about it because I was a patient. No one could tell me where my tissue was, who or which department it was sent to, or how much was left. It took a million phone calls, pleading and hours of playing middleman before we tracked down that because of a surgical error, the wrong packing slip had been put in with my slides, and my tissue had accidentally been sent to a rural hospital in Bozeman, Montana. A package that no one had seen arrive <laughs> or could tell me how they planned to get it back. After many more hours of playing middleman and through a mess of tears and panic, I eventually found that not only had my slides not made it to their destination, but it was also the last of my biopsy. Since I had had a complication during my first biopsy and was already on treatment, another one likely wouldn't be recommended. My only shot at surgery was tracking down those slides. I called uh, every department in that rural hospital until we located the package, um, and they finally were able to get it in the mail um, back to Huntsman so that they could try to ship it out again to the NIH. But all in all, these hiccups cost me about a month um, in the process, delaying the chance to get to surgery. Precious time that when your clock is ticking, every moment counts. The slides eventually made it there. They ran their tests and confirmed that this indeed was a metastatic oncocytoma. 
And while it was still so rare that no one could say with any degree of certainty that surgery would help me, the thought was if we could remove the tumor from my kidney and all of the lesions in my liver, it was possible that this thing might not go anywhere else. And if so, that could offer me a shot at a cure. There were still a million tests to run and a few more hiccups that we ran into along the way. But almost six months from when I was diagnosed, the NIH took a chance on me with a very large surgery that got me to where I am today. During that surgery, we had removed my right kidney, do five wedge resections of my liver, and burn an additional 10 tumors in my liver during that procedure. That surgery cleared out the majority of my disease, and a few months later, we went back and burned a few more tumors left behind that were in my liver. Since then, which is a little over two years ago, I have been off all treatment on active surveillance, and I currently have no evidence of disease. Now, when I was initially diagnosed, few ever thought that I would make it to this point and that I'd be standing here today. And had I gone with the first treatment options I was offered, I very likely wouldn't be. The prognosis shift that I experienced by finding the right experts in the right treatment for my case carries an immense amount of gratitude that I can't even begin to place into words. After spending so much time navigating in a system that wasn't built for me, getting lost and falling in between the cracks, and then making it out on the other side of that with time that I never expected or thought that I would have, I made a promise to myself to use the time that I was given to give back and try to make things better for other patients that may come behind me one day, because more patients deserve outcomes like I've had so far. So I didn't know where to begin with this at the time, but I was determined to use whatever skills I had to try to accomplish that goal. So when I couldn't find any information on what a liver resection or nephrectomy was like, other than some very vague descriptions on a hospital website, I made sure that after I went through the surgery, I recorded a, vi a video describing in detail what the procedure was like for me, sharing the recovery process and any tips that I could pass along, any information that I wish somebody would have given me before I went through the procedure. I uploaded that video and started a YouTube channel, and I continued to share every procedure I had afterwards, my experience on treatments, and anything that I once went looking for but wasn't able to find. I also recognized the privilege I had to be seen by some of the top doctors at the top institutions. I had exhausted every last option, but that also meant I got to see some of the best of the best. I learned so much, not only about my disease, but about kidney cancer in general in the process. And I didn't want that information to live and die with me. If I had access to the top institutions, I was going to share the knowledge gained from them, which is why you often see me shouting from the rooftops on social media. I also tried to start using my skills as a software engineer to solve problems that not only I had, but I figured other patients with rare cancers did too or just complex cases. After getting sick of trying, carrying around my giant tote bag of medical records with me everywhere, or fumbling through my accordion file of a million papers trying to find the medical records office phone number for the hundredth time, I built an app to consolidate all my doctors and their contact information, my appointments, and all my prescriptions all into one place. 
I then published that app to the App Store so other patients with rare and complicated cases could use it too. I quit my job in an industry that I'd been in for over 15 years to take a job that got me closer to healthcare. And I spent all my nights and weekends advocating or building new tools for patients. I saw small strides of progress, but those small strides didn't turn into giant leaps until I joined the Rare Cancer Research Foundation. Where not only did I find myself amongst a team as passionate as I was, but also who had made a tremendous amount of progress in unblocking hurdles and solving the infrastructure problems that set the foundation for change, which is exactly where we find ourselves today. Between tissue donation, the biobank, access to sequencing, and information on experts and resources, we're not just talking about change. We're making it. We're building the infrastructure to support patients with rare cancers in a way that empowers and enables them to participate in advancing research for their disease. Solutions that aren't just centered around patients, but also built and influenced by them. One of our latest initiatives actually touches on nearly every aspect of the story I just shared with you. Shortly after I started at the Rare Cancer Research Foundation, I found out I was going to need another procedure. We had found a small mass in my bladder, and although this mass was small, it would require a surgery that carried a few risks due to the fact that I had a bleeding disorder, something that complicated my first surgery, along with a few other risks. Recognizing how closely so many of the issues I'd run into as a patient, a patient aligned with issues that I heard other patients with rare cancer surface, and the initiatives and problems we were trying to solve here at the Rare Cancer Research Foundation, I thought maybe we could turn this unfortunate event into an opportunity. Knowing I need a f some time off for the procedure and that I may have some questionable coping mechanisms, often obsessing over code and programming to drown out and keep my worries at bay, I already knew I was going to end up building an application of some sort to keep myself busy during this period of time. And so I asked to take a shot at the platform we'd all been talking about building. Using my own case, I knew I'd be able to iterate quickly and test it out in real time. If it worked well, we could scale it and implement it for other patients. If we didn't, we wouldn't be too far behind because I was going to need time off anyways for the procedure. And either way, we'd sure learn a lot along the way. They agreed. And with the team's full support, I went heads down and began building a platform that not only took all the learnings I learned in my own case, but also the most common issues I heard other patients surface, the data quality issues I heard researchers reference, and the lack of access to clinical records that both patients and clinicians often face. Building one platform with one common set of data presented with different views to different stakeholders. This would come in handy if I came in if I had a complication when I got back home and needed emergency care. I could give the emergency physicians easy access to all my records in one place and the information that was most important to them. I wouldn't be needing my giant tote bag or my accordion file, and I wouldn't be distracting them with sequencing data or information that wouldn't be relevant to my acute care. But later, when I followed up with my physicians, they could see a different view, one that showed any medications I was on, the procedure, any imaging I had, and what my pathology report came back as, thankfully benign. All the same data and records simply presented differently depending on who was viewing it. With quality of life features like a timeline view that supports not only clinical data, 
but also lifestyle events, side effects, and symptom views that can not only be shared with providers, but also other patients to support data sharing and knowledge amongst patients as well. You can see this in my medications card, where you can see details on my side effects, when they happened, and the severity, alongside social links, like my day in the life on Cabo from my Instagram stories, content that I have the option to share with only other patients or researchers and providers too. The goal behind this platform is not only to allow patients to organize their own care and provide easier access to their physicians, but also to give them the opportunity to anonymize and donate their data to support research, enabling deep insights on rare cancers and patients often missing from the data sets. Today, this platform is currently in alpha testing, and I have used it numerous times in my own case. It's something that I wish existed yesterday for patients. It's also one of the core initiatives we've adopted here at the Rare Cancer Research Foundation that we hope to roll out to other patients in the coming year. I feel unbelievably fortunate to be a part of this team and the initiatives that we're pushing forward to bring better treatments and outcomes for patients through efforts that they have the opportunity to help enable themselves. I don't want my outcome to be an outlier. So let's fill the room with patients with success stories of their own. The road to get there may be difficult, but it's not impossible. And I'll let Marshall take it from here to wrap up and share a few of the ways that we plan to work towards that goal. So I think uh, uh, Katie did a better job of capturing the, this vision through her story than I probably could ever do service to, but I'm going to try. Um, as she said, putting the patient at the center of all the things we do our vision is that patients can come, and I already talked about tissue donation. You know, Katie talked about the struggle she had with with uh, access to her tissue. You know, months after her initial procedure, that's where our biobanking comes in, right? We want to provide those resources so it's easier for patients to know where those things are, have access to those things, and utilize them when and if they're needed and appropriate. We want to facilitate next generation genomic profiling, so. One of the remarkable things uh, that I've spoken at some length to Mark Labs, our, our founder, about is over the past six years, which is how long Pattern has been collecting tissue donations, the cost to do genomic sequencing of tumor samples has dropped by somewhere between one and two orders of magnitude. The amount of time that it takes to do that has dropped from months to years to now 24 to 72 hour turnaround, right? At the worst, 14 days. Um, and maybe most important, the utility of the kind of data we can generate by sequencing tumor samples has exploded, right? Over the past 10 years, the number of targeted therapies, that is drugs or treatments where if you have a particular mutation or your tumor expresses a particular gene in a particular way, there's a drug for that. That number keeps going up. That means if we can provide that kind of profiling and analysis and share that data for patients, they may have better options, right? It's not a guarantee. It won't be true for every patient. But the fact that this is available, relatively affordable and fast now, and is only becoming more and more valuable, not just for researchers, but for patients themselves, we want to enable that for all patients who donate to pattern.org. So that's our vision, is that any patient who donates gets molecular profiling done on their tumor. They receive a report back that is 
provided to them and their clinicians so they can potentially inform their clinical decision-making on that. At the same time, they're able to donate their raw data, de-identified de and anonymized, their health records, the sequencing data to researchers who are trying to take that and put it together and find those new targeted therapies, those new drugs, those new treatments. And all of it is supported through tools that meet all of these stakeholders, the patients, the researchers, the clinical teams, where they want to be, right? Patients need the kind of tools that Katie presented. Researchers need access to this data in the systems and platforms that they're already comfortable using and know how to, to interface with. And we want to build those bridges. The underlying truth, uh, I think Katie even said this, the data that's needed to support all of these stakeholders, the patients and the clinicians and the researchers, it's actually the same data, right? It's a different view. So we're building what we call the rare cancer or the pattern data commons, cancer data commons that aggregates both this donated clinical data and patient experience data, the kind of stuff that Katie's capturing in that platform that she talked about, as well as the raw data generated by these molecular profiling and putting it all together in a way that researchers can access it, that patients have a different view and their clinicians have a different view to access it for use in their care. We are taking these hard problems on headfirst and on purpose, right? This is not easy. Getting this data is hard. Sharing the data the right way is hard. Getting access to those molecular tests for patients, there are structural inequalities that make that hard. Understanding where those samples, where that tissue is, is that box in, in Bozeman by accident, right? Cutting edge access to diagnostics and therapeutics, continuing to collect data and stay in touch with these patients to fuel new options and supporting new ways of thinking about things like trials, trial design, making these regulatory structures supportive of groups of patients who don't fit the mold of traditional clinical science. These are not trivial problems. Uh, I don't want to present as if we believe they are, but we're really optimistic and dedicated to solving these problems and these challenges, and we want to do it together. But we also need help. We need patients to donate that tissue to power the research. We need researchers to work with us to perform the studies. If we get these samples and we get this data, right, it's only as good as the science that gets done on it. And we need all of this done together to benefit patients. Uh, I want to close by thanking the team that I am so fortunate to be part of. Uh, our funding uh, has primarily come from the Chan Zuckerberg Institute and the Department of Defense, as well as the Robertson Foundation. But most importantly, I want to thank our CRF donors and the patients who work with us to make all of this possible. Please feel free to reach out to us. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And I'll hand it back to Gerald. Wonderful. Wonderful. What an outstanding presentation. And it's, I, I find it so rewarding to hear people who not only have the scientific background, but the actual personal experience and, and let us know sort of what you went through and, and how your own thinking and initiative made such a big difference. Uh, we have three questions from the audience, and I'll, there's no role, particular importance of these, but I'll leave them up to you guys to answer. Um, one of the first question is, do you think if AI technology was developed um, enough at the start of your journey, 
it would have saved you time or less stress or made any difference. How do you think about that? Yeah, that's a great question. I spend a lot of my time digging into to AI and, and resources and tools. And there's, it's come a long way and it's a phenomenal tool in a lot of avenues, but it also doesn't do super great with really rare scenarios. There's not a lot of training data sets. Um, and so I think it probably would have helped me understand things better. Uh, for example, even now, uh, if I don't understand something in a paper, um, I will use like chat GPT, for example, to help it explain a term or a scenario to me with like analogy or something that's easier for me to understand. And then I go reconfirm that in other sources since it's not always right. Um, I think that probably would have helped aid me in my learning um, simply because it took me so long to learn so much. Um, I'm hopeful that those kinds of tools will be able to help other patients, but I also do think that they need to be used cautiously because especially when it comes to rare cancers, that they're not always accurate. Marshall, anything you add there? No, I think, uh, I mean, I would agree. I would also say, I think one of the places that we're already starting to see some advancement very quickly from from AI and LLMs in particular is aggregating some of the clinical records, right? I think a lot of folks have sort of experienced the medical records are are supposed to be pretty structured, right? In a way that, great, we can put it into a system and, and then ask the questions we want to ask. But a lot of times doctors are still capturing some of the most important details in things like handwritten notes or, or hand-typed sort of free text. And that's much harder to do analysis on as sort of a computationalist. AI, I think, is coming a long way in terms of capturing more structured semantic meaning out of the unstructured parts of medical records. I don't think we're there yet, but I think that there's a lot of efficiency to be gained in these kind of systems that are looking to gather up this data together by leveraging, you know, the things that are out there. Great, great, great. A, a second question, I'm going to expand a little bit, which is, um, what do you think about these full, complete cancer screening, body screening things? Did we do them? Where do we get them done? Uh, someone asked. It's a loaded topic. It is. <laughs> um, I've mixed feelings on some of those because obviously as a patient myself who felt very off um, and like I had symptoms that later we found out were related to the cancer, um, would have been nice to be able to, to get one of those and find it sooner. But at the same time, I also have had the experience through many different things through my diagnosis and learning more about the medical system to also know how many things are found incidentally. And when you find things incidentally, you have to go for workups. So the bladder mass that we found in my bladder that I, I talked about, that was kind of an incidental finding. Um, and I had to go through a surgery, having a bleeding disorder that put me at a high risk. Uh, and that came back benign for me. But you can imagine, I mentioned I had a bleed during my biopsy for my, my liver, liver, my initial biopsy. If you do that on somebody that has a benign lesion and then that person has a major bleed or a serious event, then you've really done more harm than you have in discovering it. And so I think it's a really complex issue because it, it does give more access to those scans and those things, but also has the potential to do more harm as well. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, one last question, which is, um, what do you think the role of, of health insurance is in your story or in this whole space? Because it seems like some of this could be expensive and time consuming and all of that. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, the insurances, I mean, 
such a complex issue, especially when it comes to rare cancers and there's so many access issues. It's a very complex topic in general. But I'll just say, for example, when I was on treatment, the very first treatment I was on, uh, it was $22,000 every 14 days for the medication I was taking. Um, and my insurance covered the majority of that. Um, but you can imagine that is not accessible. That's not accessible for me. I would not have taken that medication had I not been on insurance. And the fact that these treatments and medications are not accessible to people who don't have it insurance is a major issue. Um, so there's a lot of things like that. And then there's also my, when the order was first placed for that medication, it was initially turned down, um, for my cancer, which I think happens often for patients with rare cancers because you don't have treatments that are kind of designed and designated for your cancer. And so that leaves you with limited options too. So it's a very, very complex topic. It's, I also am like ridiculously grateful that I have insurance, um, because I need to have surveillance scans and all these things. And it is crucial to my care. And I realize like what a privilege I have in that. Um, I just wish it wasn't the case. I wish more people had access to it and we didn't have to deal with the hurdles from it. I'd add, so the, the molecular testing that I mentioned, um, you know, th there are efforts currently um, being worked on to mandate that uh, genetic testing or molecular testing be done on every cancer, um, at least every rare cancer. Um, that it's not done, but there is definitely activity in that space. I think that there's a pretty credible argument that the cost benefit is quite good um, when you know patients are already having a biopsy or already having a resection. There's minimal additional risk, and the the upside is very high, right? If you can find uh, targets that wouldn't have been known otherwise. So I think that I think it's a great question because I think that adjusting payers' perspectives on how they can you know, move the needle for patient outcomes is ultimately going to be a really, really important part of this discussion, whether it's for rare cancers or, or otherwise. But I think, you know, in the personalized space, I feel pretty strongly that we should try to encourage payers to reimburse for tests. In Katie's example, you know, this is sort of a tinned example in my mind, but, but if that were a targeted therapy and it wasn't the right therapy, right, and you could have picked a better option, as a payer, I would hope that you would prefer not to pay twenty. What did you say it was twenty-two thousand dollars every fourteen days for the wrong drug, right? That is certainly the promise of personalized testing and intervention: is let's find the better option for you because these treatments are so expensive. You know, one course of failing the wrong initial drug could be a hundred thousand dollars for a patient. So I think there is a credible argument that. The finances could be really good for the payers if if you get good at saying yes. In fact, this is a better option for the patient. Great, great, great. Okay, well, please join me in thanking Katie Coleman and Marshall Thompson from the Rare Cancer Research Foundation. And this program of the Commonwealth Club of California is now concluded. Please uh, join us on our website for future programs, and we thank you for your attendance and your support. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. 
Thank you for listening and for your support. 